Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. Lord, we pray for those in our fellowship that are home, watching on live stream. We know we have those who are sick and uh, other people dealing with different issues. So, Lord, just bless them, Lord, as they're apart from us. And, Lord, just bless our time together. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, hold on to your hats. We're going to look at 66 verses tonight. Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Can I get an Amen. We're going to go through the whole counsel of God. So, 1 Kings, let's just catch you up briefly. As we know, it's been the transition from King David to King Solomon. David's life ends in the first couple of chapters. If you remember, one of his other sons tried to take the throne when Solomon was the one that God had called to rule and reign over Israel. And David stepped up and he warned his son Solomon about those who might try to take the kingdom from him. And Solomon was was had a dream and God spoke to him and he asked God anything he wanted. God said, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon didn't ask for riches and he didn't ask for power and he didn't ask for the death of his enemies. He asked for wisdom. But the strange thing about it is while Solomon shows wisdom when it comes to judging others, he doesn't so much when it comes to his own life. Because we saw in chapter three, right after he became king, that one of the first things he did was he married uh, one of the king of Egypt's daughters to bring a truce between their nations. But in so doing, he was disobeying the word of God. But then we saw Solomon beginning in chapter four and all the way up until now that he began to build the temple. And so if you were here the last several weeks, you saw the details that took place in building the temple that it literally took tens of thousands, about 80,000 men uh, to build the temple. And it took them seven years and it came with great expense. He spent about three years just getting the, the implements together and then about seven years building it. So now as we come to tonight's chapter, the temple's been built. You need to understand that they've been delivered out of bondage in Egypt for 500 years. And there's never been a, a permanent temple in that entire 500 years that they've been either wandering in the wilderness or in the land of promise. And so that's finally has taken place. It's finally been built. And so tonight we'll see how all that applies to our lives. So if you got your outline, grab it. And I titled the message, Dwelling in Divine Presence. Dwelling in Divine Presence. Number one, by giving God his rightful place. We're going to see tonight that the presence of God is going to dwell in Israel. And he dwells in Israel because he's given a permanent place. Now, of course, he was always God's, Israel was always God's people. But we're going to see that for the first time in the 500 years since they left the land of Egypt, he's no longer in a temporary tent, the tabernacle. They have now built him a temple. And his, again, his presence will be there. We know he's not limited by a temple because nothing can limit God. Secondly... God's presence brings light to dark places. We're going to see that once God's presence is on upon the temple, that he illuminates the entire temple on his own and he brings his glory with him. Then we're going to see thirdly that God's presence delivers us from the bondage of sin. We're going to see repeatedly in tonight's chapter, just listen for this. When they came out of Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, when they were brought out of Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world or being in bondage to sin. And if you'll remember, for 430 years, the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt because they had walked away from God. 
And God allowed them to be captured. And after 430 years, God brought Moses and they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. But how were they delivered out? What was the last plague, if you will, the last thing that took place that got Pharaoh to finally let them go? What was it? death of the firstborn. And again, and they, and they became, they would always remember that. And that became the feast of what? Passover. Passover. So the angel of death passed over. They, the way that the people were delivered from the angel of death, they had to take the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross. And every, every home that had the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, the angel of death would pass over and the firstborn would be spared. And any home that didn't, the firstborn would die. Guys, it's not by chance that they were delivered out of bondage to the world through the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, just like you and I are delivered out of bondage of sin through the blood of the lamb who died on the cross of Calvary. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now the Bible rocks. In the Old Testament, every chapter we see Jesus, and we'll see some more of him tonight. So God's presence produces, fourthly, a heart of thanksgiving and dedication. Guys, I love thanksgiving. And I love it because we have a lot to be thankful for. Can I get an amen? Most of you guys know this, this last Thursday, I had all my kids and all my grandkids and my daughter-in-laws and my son-in-law all at my house for the first time in ever. They're all together. And it was such a blessing to be with my family. But you know what, guys? Before I'm thankful for my family, I'm thankful for the Lord. Amen? And no matter what happens on, in the world going on around us, and, and we're going to see in tonight's text that as King Solomon is reflecting on the temple and God's presence being there, he's going to have a heart of thanksgiving and dedication to the Lord. Then we're going to see God's presence gives us an access to Almighty God and the creator of all things. Do you know, and you, you know this, but what a blessing it is that we can talk to God anywhere at any time. That the veil's been torn, we can be driving down the freeway, we can be laying in bed at night, we can be sitting on our sofa, wherever we may be, and we can talk to Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And guys, we need to do that more. And we're going to see in tonight's text that Solomon is going to have an incredible prayer. I believe it's, I'm not positive, but I believe it's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible is in tonight's chapter. And as he is praying, what's amazing about that though, you can read the whole prayer in about five minutes. So it might tell us that that the length of prayer isn't as important as the heart behind it. Can I get an amen? Sometimes people want to exhaust God. And again, we can pray for as long as we want or as short as we want, but we don't have to. God's not marveled by the depth of our vocabulary or how long we pray. It's the heart from which it comes. Amen? So we'll see that tonight. And then sixth, we're going to see God's presence drives us to our knees. We're going to see King Solomon. He's going to begin his prayer on his feet. By the time he's done praying, we're going to see that he's on his knees. And you know what? There's no posture that makes prayer, you know, better or worse. You know, and we have a cultural way that we tend to, when we pray, we tend to just we fold our hands or we'll put our heads down. We'll bow our heads before the Lord. And I think that's a good way to reverence, have reverence for God when we pray. But you know what? We're going to see tonight's text that what was happening in their culture in those days, they would hold their hands out like this. And often look up while they prayed. And we're going to see that Solomon begins that way, but he's going to end up on his knees. And I would challenge all of us. When was the last time you got on your knees and prayed? Not that it's more spiritual or, or better, but I just know for me, I find myself when I'm in an intense situation and when I'm the most desperate for God, that I either end up on my knees or literally flat out on my face, laying on, on my carpet in my bedroom, praying and talking to the Lord. And again, 
all prayer, God hears all prayer, but to me, it's, 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 a, rec- it's a privilege where my heart is. When I'm on my knees on the side of my bed and I'm crying out to the Lord, again, there tends to be a greater passion on my, my part to cry out to God. And then finally, we're going to see God's presence brings overwhelming joy. The only one, you cannot have joy if you don't have Christ. Amen? You've heard it said, Jesus others yourself. If you do not know the Lord, because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't have joy. You can have temporary happiness that is based on your circumstances, but the source of joy is right standing with Almighty God and the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin there in verse 1. We're going to go through 66 verses. So be attentive Uh, I'm glad it's cold, so maybe you won't be napping. Can I get an amen? All right, verse 1. So let's begin there looking at dwelling in his his divine presence, giving God his rightful place. So they've they've spent seven years, a lot of resources, tens of thousands of men all coming together, the best craftsmen, the best workers, the best materials, and the temple is finally built. Look at verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now, after seven years of doing everything. The the temple had finally been built. But if you look back in chapter six, the temple finished being built in the eighth month. So it's been 11 months since the temple was completed, but they still have not really been fully using the temple because the Ark of the Covenant has not been there. Now, why in the world would he wait 11 months after waiting 500 years for the temple to be built? And I don't really have a a clear answer to that other than it could have been that they, they wanted everyone to be there. That he was spending all this time preparing for a great uh, dedication. I don't know if you've ever seen this. A lot of times people build a new building and they have a building dedication. And they'll bring people together to celebrate and dedicate the building of, of this, or whatever the building may be. Have ribbon cuttings and things like that. Well, in this case, this is the most significant building on the planet. God gave the designs to King David and King David helped gather the stuff and then gave those plans to Solomon. And then Solomon followed those plans to create the temple. Now we've talked about the temple. We'll talk about it some more tonight. But the event we will witness firsthand in tonight's text had been highly anticipated, not only by Solomon, but I believe by everyone who lived in Israel. Because they had never had a temple. It's the first temple ever built. They'd have temporary tabernacle, which was so they could pick it up and move it as they wandered through the wilderness. But they had stopped wandering for 460 plus years. So why did it take so long? The building's finally been built. There's great anticipation. Now notice it says, here's a real key point, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Now we know what the Ark of the Covenant is, but in case anybody here doesn't, let me remind you. The Ark of the Covenant is a box, not a boat. Can I get an amen? It's not Noah's Ark. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it's famous for to some people because of a movie that we're trying to find. They're the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? But the reality is the Ark was created. You know, God had ordained the Ark to exist. And the Ark was the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle and then in the temple. As a quick reminder, the five main 
furnishings that you would see when you walked into the courtyard, when it was a tabernacle or the temple, you saw the bronze altar. And it was there that they made sacrifices. We'll talk about that tonight. And they would sacrifice and they would take the blood of, an, of a firstborn, you know, lamb or bull or goat, whatever it might be. And they would make, there were different sacrifices. Some were sin offerings, some were burnt offerings, some were fellowship offerings. So they would make these sacrifices. Then they had a bronze laver, which was like a big basin where they would cleanse themselves. After being covered in blood, they would cleanse themselves. Then they would go into the holy of place and so they'd go through some drapes. They'd go into the holy place and only the priest could go there. We're going to see tonight that Solomon spent a fortune and used all these resources to build a temple. Do you know Solomon never gets to go in the temple? Because the only people that go into the temple are the priests. Now, when you walked into the temple, the first thing you saw on the left-hand side was the, uh, what, what is it, guys? Golden lampstand. Some call it a menorah, but it's a golden lampstand. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And it would illuminate the inside of the holy place. On the right-hand side, you'd see the... Table of showbread. Brett's paying attention. God bless Brett. Amen. Table of showbread's on the right-hand side, and they would have 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that the priests would constantly bring, showing that God is constantly the one who feeds us and provides for us and care for us. At the back of the holy place, not the holy of holies, there's another veil that goes into the holy of holies. There's one piece of furniture that's right there. What was that, Brett? The altar of incense. And the altar of incense was lit 24 hours a day. And that incense would spill over into the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box covered in gold. And on top of it, it had what was called a mercy seat. Now, inside it, we're going to see tonight, it doesn't have all the elements anymore. But it had, at one point, Aaron's rod. The way they found out that he was the high priest, they, they took a, a, a dead stick, really, right? And it blossomed. It was a miracle. And it proved the fact that Aaron was the high priest. So Aaron's rod was in the ark. And it was a picture of the fact that Jesus is the great high priest. Also was a jar of manna. Picture of God's provision in the wilderness. But again, pointing to Jesus who is the bread of life. And then finally was the tablets that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments. And that also was in the Ark of the Covenant. Because Jesus is the word. Can I get an Amen. Now, the mercy seat covered it because the law reveals we're sinners, but it cannot save us. And that's why we must be covered by the mercy of God. Amen. And on top of that were two angels, two cherubim, if you will, and their wings touched in the middle. And only on the day of atonement, we now call that Yom Kippur, could the priest, and it was one priest, who would go in and go into that Holy of Holies and bring the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And they only did that once a year. And it's a great picture because we know when Jesus died on the cross, when they ran into the tomb on Resurrection Sunday, depending on which account you're looking at and the details that are there, one gives us the details that there was an angel at the foot and an angel at the head and bloodstained clothes in the middle. And that's exactly what happened every single day of atonement. There was an angel on either end of the Ark of the Covenant and bloodstained clothes in the middle. So they are bringing the Ark to the temple. It had been about six miles away where it had been held, where they were worshiping in a different place. And now it's being brought to its permanent place of residence, which is the temple. Now, I want to say this. Remember, when they move the ark, they got to move it right or bad things happen. Amen? If you'll remember, David tried to bring the ark up at one point, and they put it up on a cart. And as it was on a cart, they had an oxen pulling that cart. 
And I'm sure they got the best oxen they could and probably the most, the best cart they could find, but they were doing it the wrong way. And as it was being transported, something happened, either the ox stumbled or maybe the, the, you know, the cart hit a rut, hit a rock or something. And the altar, you know, the, the ark looked like it might fall off. And a guy by the name of Uzziah reached out and touched the ark to balance it, to keep it from falling. What happened to Uzziah? He dropped dead. That's pretty rough for touching the ark. Touch not the glory. Can I get an amen? But the reality is we do God's things God's way, not our way. See, he had commanded that they would always be held by the poles and carried by priests of a specific family. And only they were to transport the ark and it would be covered as they moved it from place to place. So they had acted contrary to that. Solomon learned from what happened to David. Somehow he got wind. Hey, we don't do it that way. That was a bad idea. That didn't work out too well. And they did it the right way, and they're transporting it these six miles to the temple so it can be put into the place where it belongs. Again, it took 500 years in the land of promise, and now they've waited 11 months, and now they're gathered together, and they've brought the ark uh, from the city of David, which is Zion. So they brought the place to the Ark of the Covenant there. It says, then all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon. So it's interesting that they wait till the seventh month. And another reason they may have waited till the seventh month, that is called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's when they would remember their time wandering in the wilderness. It's also called the Feast of Booths. And so they would be wandering and they would remember that time wandering in the wilderness. They would go out and they would literally camp out to remember what it was like to be outside and camping in tents. So it's interesting on the Feast of Tabernacles, when everybody would be gathering for this huge holiday anyway, that's when they're going to dedicate the temple. And it's interesting that they were leaving the tabernacle behind on the Feast of Tabernacle and moving into something more permanent in the temple. Hard to imagine how big of an event this must have been. Can you imagine walking back and forth, being in Jerusalem and seeing all the workers, tens of thousands of them working on this building for seven years and knowing about the years beforehand when they were just gathering all the implements and then knowing from before that, that, you know, God had promised to King David, but he told David he couldn't build the temple and the desire that all of Israel had to give God a permanent house. How can, you know, David said, how can I live in a palace and God's living in a tent? Now, we know God's not, you know, wrapped up in that tent and, and God is omnipresent. Can I get an amen? But they wanted a proper place where God could be worshipped, sacrifices could be made, where God's presence would dwell. I try to think of anything in my life that's comparable. I mean, just remember as a kid, my, my dad built my mom a house and uh, it took a year and a half to build it. And it's a four-story country house. Tim and I were just up there. And I remember we'd go by and see it about every, you know, every couple of weeks. And it just seemed like it was taking forever. But I remember the day we finally moved in, what a big deal that was. I also, also thought that the amount of, of stuff that went on, because I believe that the, everybody in Israel could make it there was going to be there. And we're going to see how many sacrifices were made. And I think about like opening day of the Olympics, how they prepare for that for years ahead of time. So this is a big deal. And everybody's gathered together. And the Ark of the Covenant has been brought. It's been placed into the Holy of Holies. And now they're going to dedicate the temple to the Lord. So they assembled all together. 
Again, at the, to- at the fe- time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, verse 3. Therefore, the men of, verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought the ark of the Lord the, tab- to the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. So they didn't just bring the ark. The ark's one mentioned most because it's most significant, but they brought every other implement we talked about, the golden lampstand, the bronze laver, the altar of incense, you know, the bronze altar, the table of showbread. They brought them all and they put them in their permanent homes after traveling around in tents. Moses' original tabernacle had been separated from the ark and been located in Gibeon. So it was a six-mile trek to transfer everything. And now it seems that the tabernacle is dismantled and moved. So they don't need it anymore. I don't know what they did with it. And just before the Feast of Tabernacles, again on this holy holiday, they all gathered together and they transported the, the temporary from the temporary into the permanent. I'm trying to think of an, an application for us. You know, we're going to see the glory and the blessing that takes place when God is, God's the, temp, the tabernacle and all the implements are given a permanent home. And all I could think of is in our own lives, you know, when God takes up permanent residence in my heart, where it goes beyond me knowing about God or believing that there is a God to having an intimate relation with, with the Lord. Guys, it's one thing to, to have a distant view of who God is and have some knowledge of the Bible and to know about Jesus a little bit. And, and, and you know, you've heard the Christmas story, but do you have a relationship with him? And has he taken up permanent residence in your heart? Does his Holy Spirit come to live inside of you? It tells us in Ephesians 1 that our down payment on heaven, in a sense, is the person of the Holy Spirit. It's how we know when we repented and we surrendered our lives to the Lord. We confessed that we were sinners in need of a Savior. And we asked for his forgiveness. He came to live inside of us. And here's the good news. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? And so while the temple was the permanent home, if you will, nothing's permanent on this planet in that, in that way, in that sense, because that temple would be destroyed later. But it's a more permanent home than, he's, than the ark's ever had. But guys, we are now the permanent home, amen, of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us and he will be with us until we are ushered into heaven. And in, even in heaven, we will be with the Lord forever, amen. So... As we look there at point number one, giving God his rightful place, we've seen that they finally, uh, you know, made God's place a place that where people knew they could go, where it wasn't going to be moved, where they could go and worship the Lord. Verse five. And it says, and King Solomon and all the, all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Well, guess what? It's been 500 years that they've been there and they haven't had the temple. Now they've been making sacrifices in the tabernacle. They've also been making some sacrifices in the high places. We talked about this, which was outside of God's will. And so now it's in the permanent place and they're going to catch up. We're going to see as we get through the text tonight, literally over over 100,000 sacrifices. So they're making these sacrifices and, and sometimes, you know, people say, well, why is that even necessary? Why do you have to sacrifice so many animals? And it doesn't tell us why here, but they're making, there's many different sacrifices. Again, there's burnt offerings where it's all consumed and given to the Lord. There's fellowship offerings where portions are, sac- are, are burnt up and portions are shared in a meal. Like our agape feast is coming Sunday. And so they gathered together and the sacrifices are so overwhelming because all the people who would come would typically bring their own sacrifice. 
And they would bring the sacrifice to offer to the Lord, one for every family. And based on whether they had enough uh, money or not, they might, it might be a lamb or it might be uh, birds, all depending on the wealth of the family. And they had to find the best animal they had, and the animal had to be examined. It had to be without blemish or without flaw. And so they brought these animals, and now this huge sacrifice is taking place. Verse 6. Then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to, the, to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim, what we just talked about. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles would be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside and they are there to this day. So as this was being written, it was still the case. And so the poles that they carried the ark with would be sticking out the curtain into the holy place from the Holy of Holies as it was placed. And it says there, nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put in there at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, I love this. Now, it's what happened to the other two implements? I have no idea. No wonder the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, we do know that the ark was in the possession of the Philistines for a while. We also know the ark had, you know, been moved around several times. And at any point, somebody could have removed those items. But you know what I love is 500 years later, the word of God's still in there. Can I get an amen? The word of God, right? Again, it's the Ten Commandments, but it's the it's the you know the the first part of the word of God that was given to Moses. And there's the word of God, and it endured it all. The ark had been captured by the Philistines, the ark had been taken away, all these issues, but you know, even remember Hophni and Phineas took it out into battle, and that's when that happened. And all these things took place, and yet the word of God endures. And guys, no matter what happens in the world around us, the word of God will endure forever. Can I get an amen? And people, I mean, I had people that just this week, you know, I have a lot of friends online and I, I'm on a bunch of radio stations. I get phone calls and somebody just mocking, you call it the word of God. It's not the word of God. Men wrote it. And so well, give me another book that, were written, that was written by men that 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1500 years of one central theme and no contradictions. Name another book like that. Can I get an amen? Name another book that has hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah and future events, all of them fulfilled to a T. Name another book like that. Name a book that has two prophecies that were fulfilled, let alone hundreds. Name, name, name a book that talks about the circumference of the earth when the world, everybody in the world thought the world thought the world was flat. Tell me a book that talks about the, the mountains on the depths of the sea when no one had been down there yet. Tell me a book that describes everything the way that the Bible does in such perfect unity and how it is fulfilled over and over and over and over again. Guys, it's not a book written by men. It's a book penned by men written by God. And it's the word of God. And guys, we got a love letter from the creator of the universe. We got to open it, read it, and obey it. Can I get an amen? And so they've brought the word of God, but notice that, I mean, the, the ark, the only thing left in it is the two tablets that were given. By the way, God gave two tablets to Moses and Moses put them in the ark. And 500 years later, there they are still in the ark. And it came to pass, verse 10, when the priest came out of the holy place, 
that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Boy, I love this. So they bring the ark in, and once the ark is placed, we're in its permanent place. What happens? The glory of the Lord falls upon that place. And when the glory of the Lord falls upon, it's the word there is Shekinah. You've heard of Shekinah glory? Raul Reese calls it Chicano glory, but it's Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory fell upon. And when God's glory came upon the place, you would think that the priests would just want to hang out there. But what happened was when the, the depths of the holiness of God fell upon that place, that the priests could not even be in the presence of Almighty God. Because guys, here's the reality. God is, is he's loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, but he's also holy. Amen. And we're not. We're sinners and we were sinners. We now are holy in him. He's made us holy. But being in the presence of God just is humbling. Whenever you see the, the presence of God falling down upon the earth at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? The, the glory of God comes down. We see, you know, God is in it. You know, Jesus is in his heavenly body and they see him. And what happens? They fall on their faces before the Lord. Whenever you see the presence of God, you don't see arrogance. You don't see people cursing him. You see people falling down before him. And so here the presence of God falls upon the temple. And when it falls, so do the people to their knees. Again, with this cloud, the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. Again, it happened once before when Moses set up the tabernacle as the place of worship back in Exodus 40. And God's presence fell upon it then and it falls upon it now. So as soon as the ark, a picture of Christ, was given its proper place, the, the glory, signifying his divine presence, filled the temple. And so too, when we put the Lord in his proper place in our lives, then the glory of God dwells within us. Can I get an amen? Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The glory of God falls upon us and praise God for his love and his grace and his mercy. God's presence comes and dwells within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So this cloud represented God's presence. We see this through both the Old and the New Testament. Remember when they were wandering through the wilderness, how did they know when it was time to move? How did they know? The cloud moved. So here's what would happen. They're all camped out in tents. In the middle is the tabernacle, a much smaller and more primitive version of the temple. It's got the same implements. They would have to get up every morning and look because the cloud would be resting upon the top of the tabernacle. So when the cloud moved, they knew they had to pack up all their tents and they would follow that cloud until it stopped moving. And when it stopped moving, there they put the tabernacle and there they would build all the tents around it. And by the way, if you've ever read Numbers chapter 3, you'll know that when they encamped, they're encamped in the shape of what? Of the cross. Because it talks about exactly how they were perpendicular to the tabernacle in each direction. And when God looked down from heaven, he saw them moving in the shape of a cross. Tell me the Bible doesn't rock. You going to get an amen. Thousands of years before the crucifixion, they were encamped in the cross. The cloud of glory through which God spoke to Moses and others. Often it was through a cloud that would fall upon, fall upon Mount Sinai. And that's how he spoke to them. That the cloud that appeared again at the doorway of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, it speaks of a cloud overshadowing Mary when the Lord spoke to her. The cloud at Jesus' transfiguration. And the cloud when Jesus ascended into heaven. And when Jesus comes back, what's he coming in? He's coming in the clouds. 
So the clouds, the presence of the Lord, God's presence, and I love it, the same cloud that will display his glory when Jesus returns. So this extreme presence of the glory of God was so intense that the priests could not continue to minister. They could not remain in the holy place. And again, because God is so holy, it's overwhelming to be in his presence. In the fullness of his holiness, while still in our sinful state, we cannot remain. It is the holiness of God that makes, uh, makes the priests feel they could no longer again remain in his presence. Point number two, God's presence brings light to dark places. Look at verse 12 and 13. Then Samson spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you in an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, I love this, that when does he say that I have built you a house and a place you can dwell forever after God's glory falls upon it? Once God's glory comes upon it, he, had, he knows for sure that this is what God had commanded, that this is, this is where God's you know, glory will dwell. And again, we'll see in a few verses, he knows that God's glory isn't contained in a tent. It's not contained in a building. It's not contained in a church because we are the church. Amen? It's a dwelling within each of us. And so this is clearly Solomon's response to the glory of God filling the temple. God's presence was God's blessing upon the temple. Let those who would come to pray and make sacrifice, they knew that God would hear them. They knew that God's presence was there. They knew that's the place. They knew that they couldn't go sacrifice in high places anymore. They weren't to go to Gibeon anymore. The one place they needed to come to bring their sacrifice was to the temple where God's presence was. So point number two, God's presence brings light to a dark place. So he would illuminate the entire tabernacle, uh, entire temple, excuse me, from within. Number three, God's presence delivers us from the bondage of sin. Look at verse 14 to 21. Then king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, there's the first time we see this, he says this several times, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which, my, which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. So the first thing you see him doing as he turns to bless the people, he speaks, he speaks blessings, a blessed be the God of Israel. When you begin your prayers, I want to encourage you, begin with praise. You know, when they... they Say, so, you know, teach us how to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not really the Lord's Prayer, but we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not how the Lord prayed, but it is how he taught them to pray. And the first thing he says, our Father which art in heaven, what? Hallowed or holy be thy name. So the prayer begins with praise. And David does the same, or Solomon does the same here. He praises the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's praising the name of God. And I find that when I begin my prayers with praise, it makes my focus on the greatness of the God that we serve. And it certainly changes the way I pray. And it also gives me assurance that as I pray, our God is able to answer that prayer. Amen. So I want to encourage you, begin your prayers with praise. You hear me often, I begin when I pray up here. We, you know, you're a holy, righteous, just, and faithful God. Amen? And that's who he is. He's a great and an awesome God. And so he begins by talking about blessed be the Lord. And then he remembers his father, David. 
Solomon doesn't take credit. He just says, you know what? God chose to, to place the house in the house of my father, David. And David's the one that God, David was the one that wanted to build the house. And Solomon remembers how God had used his father. You know what? It's good to remember the godly heritage that we have. Amen. I, I, I was I'm talking to people this last week. Um, when we had all my kids and grandkids there, we talked a lot about my dad because that was their grandpa and their great grandpa. And we miss my daddies in heaven, but I am so thankful for the godly heritage I was given. I'm thankful. I don't know if I've told me this. My first word wasn't mama or dada. It was Bible because my house, my dad was a pastor and we would go to church and he talked about the Bible and my brother and I would go in the backyard and we'd play cops and robbers, but we also played church and we would stand on boxes and preach at each other when I was two years old. And I'm thankful for a godly heritage and Solomon's remembering his father, David, that God had spoke through him and God had used him. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was the one who was given the, you know, the, the, uh, architectural drawings, if you will, for the temple, how it was to be built. And then he told David he couldn't build it because he was a man of war and it would be his son who would build it. Verse 17. Now, it is the heart of my father David to build the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, whereas it is in your heart to build my temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. Now, this is Solomon saying, look, the only reason this temple was built, he doesn't take the credit for himself. He gives the glory to God. And whenever God does something great in us or through us, God needs to get all the glory because without him, we can do nothing. Amen. We always want to point people to the Lord. No matter what, how God might have used you, might, God, God may have taken your talents or your giftings and used them to lead worship, to share your faith, to teach the word, to, to, to give graciously, to minister to others. We need to always point people back to the Lord and give God alone all the glory. See, even though Solomon built it, Solomon is relaying the fact that it was given by God to his father and the promise from his, was given to his father long before Solomon even got involved. This was always God's plan and Solomon is simply a part of it. Then it says there in verse 20 and 21, So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David to sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised, I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Usually when kings built temples, they built them, or they weren't temples, but they were you know, places of their palaces. They would build them, build them in their name for their glory and their remembrance. And we know that Solomon, we saw a couple weeks ago, built a house bigger than the temple for himself after he built the temple. But at least in the beginning, he understood that what we're building, what, what, what matters is what we do for the Lord and for his kingdom, not for our comfort. Amen. And so he built the house. And then it says, and there I made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He continually reminds them back of their bondage and how God is the one who brought them out of bondage and he brought them to the land of promise and it took them 500 years, but they finally built him a temple and now this is a permanent place where they can go worship God and praise God and thank him for his deliverance, thank him for his... And guys, this is why church said, by the way, did you hear about the Supreme Court today? 
They ruled that what California did in making churches closed is unconstitutional and they can't do it. Can I get an amen to that? And then right after that, Newsom got on and said, we're closing California all down again. Did you see that today? He said, starting Friday, tomorrow and days after, he's going to shut down like all businesses. He even talked about people not being outside. Well, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> By the way, we'll keep having church. Can I get an amen? Yeah. No matter what happens, we'll be here. So keep coming. We're going to have an agape feast on, on Sunday. We might be in jail on Monday, but we're going to have an agape feast <laughs> on Sunday. We might be in line for chow on Monday. The Old Testament focus was on the deliverance from Egypt, which points to the focus of the New Testament, which is the cross. See, every time you look back to Egypt and the deliverance, you can't look past the Passover. You can't look past the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross. And everything that happened in the Old Covenant was always pointing to the Savior, including all the sacrifices that we'll talk about more as we move along. So point number three there, God's presence produces a heart of thanksgiving and dedication. And by the way, praise God for Amy Comey Barrett, who was the deciding vote today. Thank you, Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? God is good. And even if they said we couldn't meet, we meet anyway. Verse 22. It's easier when they say it's okay. Verse 22. Now the fourth thing we're going to see is God's presence produces a heart of thanksgiving and dedication. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. It says in Chronicles that he stood up on a box and he stood and he faced this huge multitude. It never tells us in this text how many people, but much of Israel has all come to Jerusalem. It's been 11 month warning. So they all have come. It's also the Feast of Tabernacles where many people would come anyway. And he comes out and he's standing before them and he opens up his hands like this. It's an act of worship and it's an act of prayer. And by the way, I love this because you know what? This is an act of surrender, amen? Of giving all that we have to the Lord. It reminds me of when, when they were, when Moses and they were, they were fighting the battle against the Amalekites and they were losing the battle. And the Lord said to him, you know, they brought Aaron and Hur to hold up his hands. And as long as his hands were lifted up, he won the bat, they won the battle. And when his hands went down, the enemy started overrunning them. And the Amalekites in the Bible are a type of a picture of your flesh. And guys, the only way we're going to have victory over the flesh is to be surrendered fully to the Lord. Amen. To have our lives surrendered fully to him. And so he stands before them. Here's the king. And he's opening his arms. And he's going to cry out to the Lord. A prayer of dedication. He said, Lord God of Israel. There is no God in heaven. Above on the earth. Below like you. Who keep your covenant and your mercy with your servants. Who walk before you with all their hearts. I love this. There's no other God in heaven or on earth like you. By the way, there's no other God, period. Amen. Now the gods that men make, there's gods that men create, but they are false gods. And by their, they're created, not the creator. Amen. And he says, there's no other God like you. The next time you're bummed out, you're worried, you're fearful, you're concerned. Remember that your heavenly father created it all. And there's no other God before him or beside him. Amen. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. And he's your best friend. Amen. And the spirit of the living God dwells within you. You have kept 
Your promise, verse 24, to your servant David, my father, you've both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it and your hand as it is to this day. The first thing he says, there's no other God before you and you're faithful to all your promises. There's no other God before you, besides you or after you. You're the only true and living God and you are a God who is faithful to, to his word and all the promises that you have made to us. By the way, again, Solomon is standing but he's not in the temple. He's standing outside the temple, as I said before, because he wasn't allowed in the temple. So he talks about the promises. And then he says there, you know, you've kept your promises. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a promise he made to David. And that promise was now fulfilled in the building of the temple. Solomon then thanks God for his promises he had already kept. Verse 25 and 26. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised, your servant David my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only, of your son, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. So he praises God for who he is. Then he thanks him for his promises that he has already kept. And then he asks God to keep the promise that he's already made. Guys, we read the word of God. Is Jesus Christ coming back? What's the answer? How do we know? He tells us in his word. He promises. Amen. And it's so good to know that when we look at the book of Revelation, when we look at the things that are coming in the future, just like every promise has been fulfilled in the past, we can trust that every promise he's made will be fulfilled in the future. We have the promise to, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He promised that to you and to me when you gave your life to the Lord, which means that because he promised it, I know that I know that I know that I'm going to close my eyes on earth and open them up in heaven. And you can believe that too if you've given your life to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Christians don't die. We just move to a much better neighborhood. Amen? And death has no sting. And the reason I'm not afraid of COVID is because... Heaven's better. Can I get an amen? And there's not, no, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so he says to him, Oh Lord, fulfill the promises that you've made concerning my family. Now remember, notice that that promise, just quickly, was a conditional promise. You shall not fail to have a man sit before me if your sons take heed to my way. Are they going to do it? What do you think? No. Not going to happen. Guess what? We're only a couple chapters away from Solomon falling apart. The same Solomon who's praying right here, we're going to get to chapter 11. He's going to turn his back on Almighty God because he's, if you didn't know this, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a problem. Amen? And because of that, he's going to turn away to follow some of the false gods of these women. And as I said before, Solomon had great wisdom when it came to other people, but he wasn't very wise when it came to his own life. We need to apply and practice what we preach. Amen? So Solomon lays hold of God's promises. And then it says there in verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Now he's not saying, will God be incarnate? He's not talking about Jesus, though he could have been. What he's saying is, can God be contained in a building? Can, can a, 
a little room in the Holy of Holies contain God? Absolutely not. He's the creator of all things. Now, while his presence dwelt there, he's saying that God cannot be contained by a building. God cannot be contained. That's why we don't put our faith in buildings. Amen? Too many people I talk to are more focused on a church building than they are on the Savior. And by the way, the church isn't a building. The church is happening here right now because we're the church. Amen? Amen. And we're the, we're, we're the ones with whom the, the Holy Spirit dwells. He's bigger than the temple. He's speaking of the greatness of God. How big is your God? It says in Isaiah, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with the span and calculated the dust of the earth in measure. He weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in the balance. God measured the heavens with the span of his hand. You know what I love? Every time we have a scientific discovery showing that the, the universe and the galaxies are bigger than we thought, it just shows me how much greater our God is because he holds the universe. The span of your hand is right here. And he holds the whole universe in the span of his hand. Guys, our God is way greater than we think. Amen? He's, he's, you know, he numbers the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, and he knows them both. He knows every hair on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. It just blows my mind that he knows every cell in my body. He knows everything that's happening. All of our, what an awesome God we serve. And then we doubt him, and we question him sometimes. God, what are you doing? Why would you do that, God? I'm mad at God. That's the dumbest thing you could ever be, is mad at God. Amen? Don't you, don't, when I spent almost a year in, in the hospital, people said, didn't you get mad at God? I said, why would I do that? That's stupid. No. Didn't you question God? No. Because I trust God. Amen? If we know how great God is, we don't question elections. Can I get an amen? God's in control. Is God still on the throne? What's the answer? They can't vote him out of office. And, and whatever happens with the, the election, you know, the finality of it, God's still going to be in control. And here's my prayer. Look, I, we all clearly pretty much, most of us here all voted one way. And I get why, because we're pro-life, we're pro-Israel, we're pro-God. Amen? And so we vote that way. But here's the good news. If God allows something else to happen, maybe it's going to hasten his return quicker, then bring it. Can I get an amen to that? Maybe it's going to make Christians make a stand for the Lord yet again. Whatever it's going to take. Sometimes we need some persecution so that we might wake up. Amen? It says in Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Just remember next time you're praying and you think you got to limit God. Well, God couldn't get me that promotion. You know, well, God couldn't heal my cancer. Well, God couldn't bring revival to California. Well, God couldn't save Governor Newsom. Could he? What's the answer? Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul. You know what? I would love it if, if Gavin Newsom became the next Billy Graham. Can I get an amen? Can God do that? But we have not because we ask not. We need to pray for people. Amen? We're all sinners just like, we're all sinners saved by grace. Amen? He says there in verse 28, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry of, my, of the prayer which your servant is praying to you before you today. I love this. He's saying, God, you can't be contained by this little building. And O Lord, will you just hear my prayer this, today? He's crying out. He's, he's, you know, I love that heart. When you come to a place where you just, just cry out to God. And too often, 
That's not what happens in our lives. We don't cry out to God. We come and complain before God. Or we get angry or bitter toward God because he's not given us the temporary stuff that we want. It says there, that verse 29, that your eyes may be open toward the temple night and day, toward the place where you said my name shall be there, that you may, bear, may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. You know what he says? Lord, will you keep your eyes on the temple and will you hear the prayers of everybody who prays here or everyone who looks towards the temple when they pray because they're praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you know to this day, I've had this happen on flights to Israel where when they are praying, they will, they will get up. They have to have 10. And sometimes I've, they've, I've, I've actually joined them a few times. Hey, we got eight. Can you guys come up here? Sure, we'll come join you. And you go up there, I mean, they need Jesus, but we'll just hang out with them, right? It's an opportunity. But what happens is they'll figure out which way the plane's flying and then they'll go, okay, so Jerusalem is there. And they will turn and pray toward Jerusalem. Now guys, we don't need to pray toward Jerusalem. Now in those days, they did. It was remembering the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who dwelt, you know, whose glory dwelt in the tabernacle. But now, guys, it's not where we look. It's not a building we turn to. The Mormons do that. They pray towards Salt Lake. People turn and pray toward the Muslims, you know, pray towards Mecca. Guys, we pray to the heavens because our God is everywhere. Can I get an amen? And we don't have to turn a direction. We can just look up and he hears our prayers wherever we are. But at that time, he's saying, will you bless the people that come here and pray? Will you keep your eyes on the temple to those who come here and seek you? And then it says there, I think I read, did I read verse 30? Verse 30. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So not only does he say, will you hear their prayers, but may you forgive. Because guys, when we pray, every prayer we pray, at least one portion of it needs to be a prayer of repentance because we're still sinning. Can I get an amen to that? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that it is in heaven. Then what? Forgive us our, our sins, our debts, our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. So part of our prayer is a prayer of forgiveness. Part of our prayer is asking God to forgive us. And so he's saying, and Lord, when you hear their prayers, forgive them. Isn't that what Jesus said on, on the cross? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Guys, we need forgiveness. We need the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. It's so good to know that God hears our prayers. It seems there's one thing that will keep uh, God from hearing our prayers. It says in Isaiah, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So when... People ask me, well, if a Muslim is crying out to God, doesn't our God hear them? No. What I mean by that is he doesn't receive prayer. You have to, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? There's only one conduit between man and God. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. And so when we pray, if someone's just praying, well, I, I, I'm very spiritual, I pray. Who are you praying to? Well, I pray to the universe. How's that working out? Amen. We had this big prayer thing in Santa Cruz and they invited me to be one of the guys to pray there. And the guy that prayed in front of me prayed the biggest bunch of nonsense you've ever heard. He was praying to the trees and the, you know, the universe and the cells and the, and I got up and said, everything that guy just prayed was a bunch of nonsense. Now we're going to pray to the true and living God. Can I get amen? 
We, we don't pray to trees. We don't worship the universe. We worship the creator. Can I get an amen? amen. And so, guys, it's not just, well, I pray. Well, who do you pray to? And whose name do you pray? And what earns you the right to come into the presence of the one you're praying to? Amen? That's why we need to pray for others, because there are many who cannot pray for themselves because they don't know the Lord. You know the one prayer God will hear? What's the one prayer God will hear from anyone? What is it? Confession. It help me works. It says in John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A prayer of repentance, God will receive even from those who don't know him because they're confessing that they might know him. Solomon is asking God to honor this temple by paying attention to the prayers of the people who pray in the direction of the temple. And from the time of Solomon to Jesus, God did not listen to the prayers of his people as they prayed toward Jerusalem. But Jesus think that they did. But now with Jesus, everything has changed. It doesn't matter where we are or what we are doing. We can pray and he hears us. Point number five, God's presence gives us access to almighty God and the creator of all things. Now, here's the, I believe, and I could be wrong. Um, I can't remember one that's longer, but maybe someone will find one. So this is just my thought. I believe this may be the longest prayer in the Bible. It's from verse 31 to verse 53. Now watch as he begins to pray. And we're going to listen to what he prays for. And there's things that we can learn from it. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven, act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way, the way of his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. For the first thing he prays for is he prays that, Lord, when people come and repent, hear their prayers. When anyone sins against you and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in the temple. So when someone sins and then they come and they ask for forgiveness, they come to the temple and they ask for your forgiveness. Lord, hear their prayers and forgive them. Forgive the sin of your people. That's his heart. Again, I love that we can take many steps away from God, but it truly is only one step back. Then he says, uh, Condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous. He's telling him, look, Lord, when, when the people come before you, bring judgment upon those who reject you and blessings upon those who follow you. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. And when they turn their back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you have you gave their fathers. So he says, when your people, and by the way, this happens a bunch of times where they sin against God, they go and follow after the gods of this world because they, they are taken captive. They're taken away by Babylon, whoever it's been in the past. And when they're drawn away, it's going to happen again in the future. He says, when they repent, hear their prayers and bring them back into their land. And you know what? He prays this prayer. And this is a prayer that God's going to answer many times. When we get to Daniel and others. We're going to see that they're taken away captive. And they're taken away captive because of their own unrighteousness. And he's praying, Lord, when they blow it, 
And when they go out and they get defeated by their enemy because they're doing things in their own strength and Lord, they're separated from you. Lord, when they repent, when they turn around and say, God, forgive me, that God forgive them and bring them back home. And this reminds me of the illustration I use a lot that we can take 10 steps, 100 steps, 1,000 steps, a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. Amen? Then as you wander away from the Lord, he loves you. And as you turn and surrender your life to him, he is a loving God, a gracious God, and a merciful God who indeed will restore you back unto himself and give them back the land. You know what? Has any nation ceased to exist, been gone for almost 2,000 years, then become a nation again? The answer is yes, one, and it's Israel. Amen? You know when people would read the Bible in the 1800s and early 1900s and it would mention Israel? People would scoff. And they tried this thing called replacement theology. Well, it's the church or it's something else. And the reality is it's always been Israel and God brought, can you imagine taking people and scattered, they're scattered across the globe and they're coming back into their nation again. It's a fulfillment of scripture, amen? The fig tree's blooming again, amen? The word of God tells us so. Then it says in verse 35 and 36, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. They may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. He's saying, look, when there's a famine because they've sinned against you and they cry out to you, let it rain again. Now, guys, they were desperate for rain because when it didn't rain, their crops failed. And they would cry out for rain. And God, many times we see it in scripture, that because of their wickedness, he would, see, he would bring famine in the land. And so he said, when they do this, they didn't have irrigation. They had to trust God. You know, sometimes the conveniences we have created have made us more comfortable and less desperate for God. You know, when you have a lot of money in your bank account, you might be a little less desperate for God. When you, when you know that there's plenty of food and there's you know, plenty stored away, we become less desperate for God. In those days, if the rain didn't come, fruit wouldn't grow and people would starve and they would cry out to God. He says, and because God would bring leanness and God would bring drought when they were walking in disobedience. And he said, when they cry out to you, Lord, hear their prayers. And bring the rain back again and teach them what they need to learn because of the choices that they have made. It says there in verse 38, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by, oh, verse 37. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all the people of Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. When they have gotten so far away from you that there is, you know, a plague upon their land. And then they come to a place where they repent again. Lord, please forgive them. Guys, I think that's a good prayer for our country right about now. Can I get an amen? Has our country turned its back on God largely? Have we rejected his word? His name's used more as a curse word in our nation than it is as an act of worship. And the Bible says in the last days we'll call good evil and evil good, and we're living in it right now. Amen? 
And again, so in the midst of that, we should look at Solomon's crying out for people he will never meet. Lord, when it happens, when that plague comes, and when they turn around and they repent, Lord, please forgive them. You know what, Lord? The plague has come to some degree, and Lord, please forgive us. Amen? And as Christians, we need to make a stand for the Lord in the midst of a perverse and a lost and a dying world. It says in verse 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Verse 41, moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, who has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Who are the foreigners? Us. Us. Gentiles. He said, do you know that there was a court of Gentiles in the temple? Do you know the temple wasn't only built for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you know that our God has always been the God of all nations? Can I get an amen? And his desire is that none should perish, no, not one. And that he is a gracious God. And you know what? He's saying, I love it. Solomon's prayer here is amazing. Because he's like, and Lord, for those people that are outside of our family, when they come, bless them. When they come, minister to them. Hear their prayers when they come. When they hear of your greatness, when they hear of your strong hand, and they come running to you, Lord, bless them. Boy, I love Solomon's heart here. It's hard to imagine that this is the same guy we're going to see in chapter 11 in a couple of weeks. It's tragic. Lord, when our sinful actions have brought heavy consequences and we cry out to you, Lord, hear us. Lord, forgive us, please, because we're going to need it. It says there in verse 44, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever, to the, where, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and his temple which I have built in your name, that here in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Now I want you to notice one thing he says here. When your people go out into battle against their enemy, wherever you send them. Lord, when you send them out into battle, may your hand be upon them. Guys, we cannot go out in rebellion against God and expect God to bless us. Amen? We cannot act contrary to what the word of God says and then say, Lord, will you bless it? Hey, I'm dating an unbeliever, Lord. Will you bless it? Hey, Lord, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cheating on, on, on my taxes. Lord, will you bless it? Hey, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, doubt, I'm looking at pornography. Lord, no. You cannot live in rebellion and expect God to bless it. Amen? He says, when they go the way you lead them, when they were following and obeying you, Lord, hear their prayers. And Lord, bless them as they go. I love it. And then he says there in verse 47. I did read 46. Yes, when they sin against you, for there is no one. Verse 46, excuse me. It says there, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. There's no one who does not sin. You become angry with them. 
And you deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, which led them captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, the temple which I have built to your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you all their transgressions what they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may, you may ha- that they may have compassion on them. What a great prayer. Amen. He's saying, look, when we have disobeyed you when we have openly walked in rebellion we've been taken captive by our enemies but lord in the midst of that when we recognize that we've blown it and we turn back to you lord and our, the people cry out to you yet again will you forgive them and deliver them and even get make the the enemies who've taken them captive show them compassion Guys, that's our God. He's a gracious God, a loving God, a merciful God. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, it's that million steps away and it's only one step back. And if you find yourself living in rebellion against God right now, there's a way to fix that. To turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. Lord, help me to turn away from that sin and to follow you. Again, to repent and follow hard after God. Verse 51. I'm getting way ahead of my notes. That's what happens. You get to know the text well enough. Sometimes that happens. Amen. Verse 51. He says there in verse 51. For they are your people, your inheritance, whom you what? Brought out of Egypt. Notice he's saying this over and over. Just think of it brought out of bondage. Just think of it that way. We, we are his people that he brought out of bondage. Can I get an amen to that? We were bound in sin, right? We were headed to hell without the Lord. We were sinners in desperate need of a savior. And he has brought us out. And he keeps reminding them, you brought them out of Egypt. These are your people, Lord. Keep your eyes on them. Don't forget them. And he says there, that your eyes may be upon, oh, excuse me, for they're your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be upon to open to the supplication of your servant, the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke to your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. Oh, Lord God. Now, I love how he prays about things that God has promised, but he can only know that if he read the word. Can I get an amen to that? So when we know what the word of God says, we're going to pray according to the word. Lord, we know your word says that you will never leave me nor forsake me. So Lord, I'm not, help me, Lord, not to be fearful or anxious right now. Lord, you say that you're Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. You promised to provide for me. So Lord, I trust that you will provide for me. So we can pray the promises of the word of God, but only if we know what the word of God says. I love that picture. So God's presence gives us access to almighty God and the creator of all things. God's presence drives us to our knees. This is a pretty fervent prayer. Can I get an amen to that? He's praying fervently. Verse 54. And so it was. When Solomon had finished praying all this prayer. 
and supplication to the Lord that he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. He started praying like this. And with the fervency he prayed, all he could find himself doing is dropping to his knees before Almighty God. And that's a reflection of what his heart is. We can drop to our knees and our heart not be in the right place. But the fact that he's praying this fervent prayer and he falls on his knees before the Lord. Again, he began it standing and he ends it on his knees. And it says in verse 55, Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of his, of his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. There's not one failed word of all his good promise. That's underlined in my Bible. I love to underline the promises of God. Not one word of his promises failed. And fast forward 2,000 years plus, and not one word of his promises failed. About 3,000 years at this point forward. And not one word of his promises failed. May the Lord God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments. And he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require. Lord, don't forget my prayer ever. May it always be near to you what I'm crying out for. Lord, will you keep these promises you've made to us? He already knows that he will, but he prays that he will. And I love that picture. And then he says there that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Amen, 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 and amen. The Lord is God and there is no other. People will say, Christians, you're so narrow-minded. You know what? The truth is narrow. Amen? The Bible says narrow is the, the path that leads to heaven. It broadens the way that leads to destruction. There is no other God. He says, let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord your God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as to this day. I want to say to the youth that are here, if you end up going to a secular college later, or even many other colleges, you're going to go and your, your faith's going to be challenged on campus. And these are the kind of verses you need to remember. Can I get an amen? That I will remain faithful to my God and I will not turn to the right or to the left. And you're the only true and living God. You're the only faithful God. And science teachers can be wrong. We believe more in science than they do because our God is omniscience. Can I get an amen to that? And we need to know what we believe and why we believe it so we can stand for it when, we're, when people come against us. Guys, this is not a book of fairy tales. This is the living, breathing word of God. And the way that you will be able to stand in the day of adversity is when you spend time in the word and you hang on to the Lord with both hands. Can I get an amen? And walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is what we need to know. And they're going to challenge you. You really believe in that Bible? You believe that a, a, a whale swallowed a man? You really believe that? One of my teachers said that to me. You really believe a whale swallowed a man? I said, you know what's worse? You believe that whale became a man. You tell me which one's harder. <laughs> Can I get an amen to that? You believe in evolution, the good of the zoo to you. And I believe, yes, a fish can swallow a man because God said so. Amen? You know what he says in these verses? God is reliable. Not one word has failed. The past guarantees the future since God is unchanging. Man needs God's help. Without him, we can do nothing. We stand in the daily need of assistance from God because he neither slumbers nor sleeps. God's desire is that all people come to know him, not just those in Israel. And in light of who the Lord is and all that he has done, he can, he can uh, know our hearts. 
and we can be loyal to him. God chose Israel that through the whole world, through them, the whole world would come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God blessed Israel, not just to bless Israel, but that Israel will be a blessing to others. See, God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. Finally, last point, God's presence brings overwhelming joy. Now, as he ends his prayer, the opening of the temple, it's amazing. God's presence is there. The Shekinah glory is there. They're bringing praise and glory and honor to his name. And then it says in verse 62, And then the king and all of Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine how much blood is flowing from the temple? Why does the temple always need to be so bloody? Why is that? Because we need to be reminded that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. We need to recognize that while salvation is a free gift, it comes with a heavy price. Amen? And what can wash away our sin? Nothing but what? So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And on that day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for he offered burnt offerings and grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive. They were giving so much. The sacrifices were so great that the bronze altar could not uh, do all of it. The grain offerings, the fat offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast all of Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of the Hamath to the, bo the brook of, of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. They had a 14-day feast to celebrate the opening of the temple. You know, there's one feast that's going to be better than this one. Where's that one taking place? Heaven. It's in heaven. Amen. When we get to heaven. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the Lord and went to their tents. What does that word say? What does it say? Joyful. They went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. You know, my prayer is that every time we leave here, every Sunday, every Thursday, every time we walk away from here, we should be thanking God for all that he's done. Can I get an amen? And you know how we have joy in our hearts in spite of our circumstances? We remember all that he has done for us, with us, in us, and through us. And we got through 66 verses and we're on time. There's yet another miracle proving that God is great. Can I get an amen? So dwelling in his divine presence, giving God his rightful place. God's presence brings light to dark places. God's presence delivers us from the bondage of sin. God's presence produces a heart of thankfulness and dedication. God's presence gives us access to Almighty God and the creator of all things. God's presence drives us to our knees and God's presence brings overwhelming joy. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. We thank you for your word that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here tonight. None by chance, all by divine appointment. All those who are watching on live stream, all those who will watch later. And Father, we just pray that as we read this prayer of Solomon, that our hearts would be as fervent, our prayers would be as passionate, that we would be surrendered fully unto you, that we would not be satisfied to live a lukewarm walk, but Lord, to walk in the center of your will. May we have the same passion, not to just pray for ourselves, but as Solomon does, to pray for others. Praying for some he would never meet. 
praying, Lord, help us to intercede on behalf of others. Help us to have fruitful and passionate prayer lives. Help us, Lord, to enter into your presence, to sing your praises, and help us, to, Lord, live a life filled with joy because it's the fruit of your Holy Spirit, because of the promises we have, because we've been adopted into your family, because we're going to heaven, because you're a faithful God, and we get to serve you and love you and walk with you. And one day soon, we're going to see you face to face. We can't even imagine, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And when you come, may you find us busy about your work. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said...